Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Zhang Tihan, one of the hosts of our Taiwan On Air podcast series, sponsored by the European Associations of Taiwan Studies. And today, we're here for a book chat. Our guest today is a rising star French scholar who specializes in Taiwanese and Chinese literary studies and translation, Professor Guanel Gavric from University of Lyon 3, Jamula. Both Guanel and I studied at the University of Lyon 3 as doctoral students back in early 2010s, a long time ago. First time we met was because I required some help from a native French speaker to help me revise my poorly written doctoral proposal and application in French at the time. Although Gwen had never met me before, I have to say he was very kind to lend me a hand to review my application altogether. He has always been a great help and a true friend, and of course, a wonderful colleague to work with throughout these years. Many of our Francophone colleagues who work on Taiwan studies also know Gwen through his great works of fiction translation. As a doctoral student, he started with his translating Wu Mingyi's Sui Mian Da Hang Xian, Roots in a Dream, and subsequently translated also Wu Mingyi's Fu Yan Ren, the Man with the Compound Eyes, and Tian Tiao San the Mo Su Shi, The Magician on the Skywall, as well as also other different Taiwanese novelists and poets such as Ji Da Wei, Gao Yifeng, Xia Yu, and Wa Li Si Nuo Gan. In recent years, his translation also goes beyond Taiwan, further including other Chinese best-selling eco-sci-fi such as The Three-Body Problem from Liu Cixin and The Waste Tide by Chen Chofan. His research today crosses between the science fictions, genre, eco-criticism, and Sinophone literary translation. And of course, Guan also plays a key role in the promotions of Taiwan literature and culture to the French-speaking world, as he's not only in charge as the director of Taiwan Fiction Collection Series in the Asiatic, but he also collaborates with Ministry of Culture, Wenhua Bu, and Centre Culturel de Taiwan à Paris to bring authors and poets to the Francophone readers. Today, however, we are not here to quiz Guan about his uh, literary translation, but more about his scholarly research and his monograph, The Literature in the Age of Anthropocene, an Eco-Critical Study of the Taiwanese Writer Wu Mingyi. La littérature à l'ère de l'Anthropocène, une étude éco-critique autour des œuvres de l'écrivain taiwanais Wu Mingyi, which was recently translated into Chinese by his wife, Xu Yawen, and published in Taiwan by Xinjing Dian Publishing. This is a book that based on Guanan's doctoral thesis with adapted revision. 
In this book, readers are able to go more in-depth on Guanayar's own critical interpretation and analysis of Uming's work across different periods and also his theoretical understanding and worldview contextualized in the age of Anthropocene. Welcome to our book chat podcast. Huanying, Huanying. Thank you. Hello, Joanne. Hello, everyone. Thank you for your kind words and thank you very much for this invitation. I'm delighted to, to have the opportunity to talk about this book and especially about Taiwanese literature. Great. So let's jump on to our first question to our guest. I want to focus on how did you choose Wu Mingyi's work as his primary literary base? Because if we go back a little bit in time, when you first started working on this as your thesis, what brings your attention to work on Wu Mingyi and why Wu Mingyi by himself, his work? We saw that you have bringing some other writers like Liu Keqiang and Wang Jiaxiang in one of your early chapters for discussion. But why didn't you choose to write a book that is more generally talking about different environmental authors or nature writers in Taiwan? Okay, thank you. I think that I also need to go back a little bit in time. Actually, when I started my PhD thesis, it was like 13 years ago. It was 2010, I think. And at that time, I decided to work on ecological issues in Taiwanese literature. So it was like decided. And for that, I identified several others, including Umi, who I must say at that time was not yet the big writer, the major author he is now on the Taiwanese literary scene today. So at the time, Mingyi had already published some fascinating nonfiction books about butterflies, for instance, or about Taiwan's uh, waterways, uh, Taiwan rivers and, and lakes and so on, as well as a few fiction stories, fictional stories, but hits like big hits like uh, The Man with the Compound Eyes, Fu Yeren, or The um, Magician on the Skywalk, or The Stolen Bicycle, had not yet been published when I began to write my thesis. But I can't explain that. I kind of fell in love with the novel you, you mentioned, Shuimen uh, Hangxian, The Roots of Sleep published in 2007. And I tried to convince at that time my thesis supervisor that there was a lot to say about this writer in particular. And as it turns out, I was right, fortunately. It's sort of pretension, but I think that's true and that it has been confirmed by his other books because he has written many other books that were and still are, I think, highly relevant to the subject I was covering. But nevertheless, I also, as you mentioned, talk about all the writers in my book. First, because I think that they are interesting in themselves, but also because it's important to understand the socio-historical as well as the literary context in which works are born and how what writing differs, like Wuming's writing differs from that of his or her counterparts in the past and also in the present. And what makes him different from other writers, for instance. So it was also necessary to include other writers like Liu Keqiang, Wang Jiaxiang, or Song Zelai, and so on, to understand more what is special about Wuming. Okay, so it's more like a, as a reference point uh, that they can sort of interact uh, with Wuming's text, and then you put them there in order to address like a holistic work uh, for Wuming himself. Yeah, actually, I must say, in terms of a literary canon, it was not a literary canon at all at that time. I mean, not a canonical writer, but my point was to work on a contemporary issue about contemporary literature. So I was aware that what I was writing at that time would need to be updated or maybe will be not so relevant maybe 10 or 20 years after that. But it was the point of the thesis. I didn't see it as a 
definitive work but as uh, the premise or the beginning of a, a work in progress. And Wimis was just perfect with that because he comes after a lot of different kind of literature about nature, about environment in Taiwan, and it has roots in the Taiwanese history or social historical context. But he has something new to, to say. It's a new voice and to grasp him and to make it aloud to a French audience as well. Definitely, definitely. And I think you uh, made the right bet <laughs> on Wimin Yi as well. <laughs> it was luck, I swear, because I didn't know that you will write so many books about the topic. So I now wanted to how you choose your chapter titles, because that's something that fascinates me. In a sense, even though it is written as a thesis, but you didn't want to follow a typical kind of scientific structure, isn't it? Especially you decided to name each chapter quite poetically, such as nature, skywalk, water, land, species, catastrophe, and ecotopia as your chapter's theme. Are these titles somehow echoes each theme or subject that you learn from reading Umini's work? Can you talk a little bit about what is your inspirations or explanation behind these naming? Okay. Actually, as you said, the book is an adaptation of my thesis, so it has gone through a lot of uh, little modifications, adaptation, including the division into seven chapters. That was, in fact, a suggestion from the director of the collection series, Stefan Korkuf, who had already suggested it to the previous order to have published in this collection. So it has this format, I mean, this structure, seven chapters. And I thought that it was relevant, both thematically, maybe chronologically, to make different kind of uh, approaches. Because maybe one of the um, statements of my book is that ecological issues go far beyond the question of nature, and it tackles upon a lot of different issues. So I was going to be like more thematic and deal with the Anthropocene issues, but through different thematic themes, subjects. And I try to identify major themes that would draw on women's literature, both metaphorically, like skywalks. It could also be, of course, it's, it's um, I mean, a key word in his, uh, in his literature, but also interesting metaphor. And also very concretely as water or disasters that are directly dealt with in women's fiction. And as for the, you said the poetic aspect, actually it's a little bit embarrassing, but when you write a book about literature, you know you want to do something different, something that stands out from the classic works of social sciences. As in literature, you try to combine like the form and the content. Well, maybe I didn't succeed it, but you never know. So I just tried to make something like, like that. And I remember that for the, um, the Chinese translation, as you said, it was my wife who did it. Poor thing, that wasn't easy either. <laughs> but she usually translates literature, so she's good at it. Yes. But she still used to say to me during the translation process, why do you need to write it in such a literary way? Make it easier, okay? Well, what's that? And so on. So maybe there is also something French about it, you know, maybe kind of... I think there is definitely a French touch of their structures. They're very beautiful and very poetic in that sense. It's not directly something that I wanted. I wanted to be very French or anything, but it's true that a lot of essays or philosophical essays, even academic works in French are sometimes a little obscure because we want it to be more literary. Maybe it's kind of little difference between the English academic word and the French one. Yeah. Maybe in English it's very clear, the structure is very obvious, and maybe it's easy to read. Yeah, it has to be scientific, yes, and then clear message. Yeah, maybe. Maybe there is something about that. But it was not like definitely wanted to be like that. But I think it's definitely a different vibe to present an academic work. And then it's sort of take a different spin. 
Now I want to move on to uh, applying environmental theories to literary studies, actually. So my question would be, in terms of theories, we see that in the introduction, there is an ambitious uh, to ground the theoretical context for readers to interpret and understand entire work of Wuminese. And you clearly map out a guidance of how to read Taiwanese eco-literature in the age of Anthropocene very, very well. I was very, very impressed, like you summarize uh, very effectively the theoretical approach, like how Paul Crutzen's notions of Anthropocene, Deleuze's rhizome, or Jeanette's transtextuality. Then you further apply them in the literary context. But I wanted to ask you, what is your view on these constantly evolving notions, theory or concept, especially when we are talking about the study of environmental humanities today? Because in the past, for example, just giving example of uh, Bruno Latour, that he used the term of Anthropocene, but recently before he passed away, he said that I would like to challenge the idea of Anthropocene and then change it to the new climate regime because he finds that in the past, people don't take the social political context into that kind of analysis. So what is your view? Because especially your book's title is Reading in the Age of Anthropocene. Would you say that you want to change it in the future, or is this a book that will have space to evolve in its own term? Okay, that's a very good question. Just a little word about Bruno Latour, he just passed away, and it was very close to Taiwan these recent years. Yes. Also thanks to Paul Jobin. And I know, but we didn't have uh, any discussion about that with Bruno Latour, but I know that he read, or at least he ordered my book. Wow. So maybe may we'll uh, understand Taiwan through not only this book, of course, but he's interesting in the subject. So I had uh, an interesting exchange with Bruno Latour about another article that I write with Jean-Yves Hortebis about the Chinese ecological civilization, but that, that's another issue, another story. As the, the question of the Anthropocene as a concept, once again, I think that it's important to go back to the genesis of the project. I mean, the PhD thesis project and then the book. And actually in 2010, the concept Anthropocene was, that's well known, but very little used in the literary academic circle, at least in French. But I think that it was also a case in Chinese and English. It was a bit of a novelty, maybe something refreshing. And there was a need, I think at that time, to put words to what was more than just a concept, but also a new paradigm. So today, the term, the concept of Anthropocene is used a lot, often as a synonym for environmental crisis, which I don't think is the same thing. Yes. Because it's definitely not the same thing. And I think that there is a fundamental dimension to the Anthropocene concept. It is that of time, actually, in different temporal regimes. And it is in the consideration of different relative times as well as the elasticity of short and long time, that his idea still seems to be very important. Particularly with the, with the concept lies in the notion of anthropos, actually. As Honoret pointed out, because we know that, it depends on the society and the era, and we know that all humans have not all had the same impact on the climate and on the geological forces. However, I think that it's also important to think about the climate crisis in terms of species, and as such, the Anthropocene is a scientific proposition. It's not there to accuse this or that group or this or that ideology. I understand that uh, the recent concept of the Capitalocene, maybe you heard about, for example, as a way of questioning the, the core, the reason of the environmental crisis, so it, namely industrial capitalism. So I think that it's a good point, but it is neither a synonym or a substitute for the Anthropocene. Actually, the Anthropocene, when you look back to the literal terms, Anthropocene tells us that here's the fact, 
Okay. Anthropogenic forces, like human forces, have become the major geological forces in our planet. And now what do we do? It doesn't elude the fact that some human or some societies or some ideologies are more responsible than others to this problem. But it tells us that we are in a new scientific geological era. So what do we have to do politically, but also philosophically? And as far as I'm concerned, what arts and literature can do during at the age of this new geological era. So, of course, Anthropocene is an interesting concept for literature, but it also has to be clear that it's a concept from geology. It's a scientific concept and not a social concept. So it, it lacks this kind of what uh, Bruno Latour said, factoring the social conditions, but it doesn't want to do that as well. So I think that it's a good concept, but it depends on how to use it. Yeah, definitely. But my guess is in your books in the future, would you want to revise, uh, for example, not just in your journal article, would you want to write a second book following up in a way to uh, revise sort of the notion that you proposed before? Uh, maybe uh, if, I, if I need to rewrite my book or write a second volume, I will not redefine, but maybe precise the use Anthropocene right now in the literary scene or in the academic circles, because it has been used in so different ways. And sometimes it lacks the scientific idea behind. As I said, it was like used like uh, the same word for environmental crisis, but it's not the same idea. I mean, of course, environmental crisis is a kind of consequence of the Anthropocene, but environmental crisis is um, situated in a short term time. Anthropocene is like a geological time, so it's really not the same thing. Yeah, I think that's something that in the future maybe considering other different book projects. Maybe <laughs> if I have time. <laughs> I also need time. <laughs> yes, definitely. Now, can I shift to publishing your work, both in Chinese in Taiwan? I want to ask you to comment on what initiated the project of translating your work into Chinese. And when you publish your book in French, have you always thought that one day you would like it to be published in Chinese, especially in Taiwan? Or was it a kind of like an accident? that unexpected but wonderful kind of surprise some publisher approached you for this project. And finally, could you also tell us a little bit more, how do you feel that your translated monograph contributes towards the eco-literary studies in Taiwan? Actually, this book was published in France in 2019. So it's both recent and old. Two Taiwanese publishing houses actually made an offer to my French publisher just as soon as it was published. Because you know, it's not because of the book itself, maybe they haven't read it, but because of Wu Mingyi, Wu Mingyi is a big writer in the Taiwanese scene, so maybe it attracted some interest from publishers. But at that time, there were like disagreements with the director of the collection series who wanted to publish my book with another Taiwanese publisher. But after that, the editor has, hasn't contacted us since. So we waited for like three years. And three years later, the book was recommended to Xinjin, the writer, a friend, Huang Chongkai, which was also a Taiwanese writer. And it was just perfect for us to publish the book with this house, this publishing house, as it has also published books by Wu Mingyi and other others I have translated, such Gao Yifeng. So it was just the perfect match. And my editor, I want to thank her here, Sandra Liang, Liang Xinyu, was also fantastic. And she knows Wu Mingyi's work very well, and she has worked with him. So it was just perfect for us to translate and to work with this publisher. I didn't necessarily plan to translate my thesis or my work into Chinese at the beginning, even though I had partly translated it to Chinese for my defending committee, actually, 
for uh, Professor Chen Jianzhong Lao Shi, Taiwanese Professor Chen Jianzhong, who cannot read French, so I partly translated it, but it was very bad. I mean, the translation was not very good. And why? Because I was convinced that there would be a lot of books about Wu Mingyi coming out, but then <laughs> I discovered that no. So I think that it's, for now, the only monograph, I mean, a whole book or a book about a lot of Wu Mingyi inside so far. So actually, I did ask Xinyu, I did ask my Taiwanese editor if it was of any value to Taiwanese readers, because I was not sure at the beginning when they made the, the offer to translate it. But I guess it was because she convinced me and she did make the offer. So maybe I think it could be useful both for readers of Wu Mingyi. I mean, common readers would like to have an overview of his work with a bit of literary social context. But readers were not academic readers, I would say or not specialists in literature study, and wouldn't go to find an article in an academic journal about the other, because, you know, it's always hard to, to find and to look for, that just with this book, you have a book that you can find in bookshops that you can buy, so it's much more easier, maybe. And on the other hand, I hope that it will also encourage other academic queries if they're on Umini or on the subject. For instance, in France, I know that some university departments of comparative literature or philosophy have put my book in their recommended bibliography. Maybe just because of the title, you know, maybe they haven't read it at all, but the title is maybe that uh, you're curious for students or researchers who don't know Taiwan and who may discover me or other Taiwanese writer or even Taiwan through this book and can be a good thing too. I think that definitely a lot to offer. Like, for example, I was thinking when I was a undergraduate student studying Taiwan, and then I'm, if I'm interested in eco-literature, who would I go for, like, buying the books in general? Because, say, for example, in, in Taiwan's English department, language, language and literature department, they have a lot of reading about comparative literature from the outside. But there are little publications about Taiwanese author themselves who works on eco-literature. And then I think that allows even just general literature students who's able to open up a, a view on what do they have in Taiwan as eco-writer. And then you have a, another position from French academic or European institutions to look into a, a Taiwan author, basically. I think that's uh, wonderful. Yeah, the idea was also to mix some eco-critical theories. I mean, from USA or from Canada with French theory, uh, what we call French theory in English, but with some French thinkers and also for like Taiwanese experience. Because in that book, I mean, when I wrote it, it was for French readers at the beginning. And I must say that in France, ecologism or even postcolonial studies are not so well known here. Started to develop, I would say. Now it's better, but it's still underdeveloped, I think. And it was useful or maybe necessary to give an overview, a very simple, easy overview of the of the theory. And maybe my book is also useful for that. I mean, just to give French students or Taiwanese students a really easy, simple overview about eco-criticism and its link to postcolonial studies and maybe it's linked with French theory and so on. I mean, it's not very deep in the e-mind study, but it can be helpful for that. Very useful. Even very pedagogical, I would say, in some way. Thanks to my translator, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I was going to get to the questions about the translator, actually. So following the above question, I'd like to ask, what is it like to work with your wife, Yawen, the translator of your academic publication? I understand that maybe working together to translate other authors' literary creation is one thing, but this is mostly 
academic content, so could be very different from translating novels or, or short story or even poetry. Would you mind sharing a little bit of experience with us, for example? What sort of aspects you enjoy the most collaborating together on translating this book? Maybe as you know, because I, I know that you're also translating literature right now, translation is always this kind of sadomasochistic activity. I mean, with a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain. So just like that. Actually, we're both translators. We all know what does it mean to translate and where is the pleasure and the pain. So it's a good thing and also a bad thing that we both know that we will suffer from that <laughs> and also enjoy that at the same time. But I, I guess that yeah, one must have suffered a lot translating a book with the other right next to her <laughs> because it's kind of not what we do usually. For instance, what I sometimes did was to record myself reading my text out loud and through the intonations, the sentence breakdowns and so on, it was sometimes more comfortable for her or more easy for her to, to translate. Interesting. Actually, I also help her in this way when she translates French fiction writers. Sometimes you have, um, I, I mean, can be helpful. So there was like something strange about me recording myself or my wife sitting next to me and then watching her listening through headphones to the words of her husband <laughs> sitting next to her. But I trusted her completely and I could have wished for a better translator. Not just because she's my wife, but she had also read Wumingi and the others I'm working on. And for me, that was fundamental. I mean, she's very familiar with Taiwanese literature and literature in general, because actually she's a literary translator, not an academic translator, which was also precious. And as for this academic literary distinction, ask want to try to keep um, literary trace, I mean, as in the original, as we said it. But it's so that you can take more liberties, actually, when you translate academic than literature. I mean, to take back a sentence, a paragraph, or even to delete elements if you find them irrelevant for the Taiwanese readership. So typically, we didn't leave the, the footnotes because Taiwanese readers know it well, or if they don't know it, it won't be through a footnote for a French academic, you know. So you have maybe more freedom to adapt the text to the audience than it's the case in literature. I think that's something very interesting, especially when you mentioned that you record yourself so that she's able to like catch the tempo of your sentences, which help her to translate. But it's painful because, yeah, she has to listen to me, I mean, usually, <laughs> daily, and then also when working. So that's painful. Does she feel like there is a Hulk eye behind her always, like a big brother eyes? Maybe, and that's uh, thanks to her, and thanks for her patience. I have to give my praise to her for sure, because I read your work in French, and then uh, later on your work in Chinese. I have to say she did a pretty good job translating it and keeping very respectful for your authentic creativity, and at the same time adapt uh, the text very beautifully in Chinese. So finally, to conclude our sessions, I just want to ask you a quick question before we let you go. Any plans to publish this book in English in order to benefit more readers of Umi's fan worldwide? I say I'm not sure. I can't be the best judge for that. I'm not sure if it's essential to publish my book in English. Maybe it will sound like an excess of modesty, but in fact, it's more laziness. <laughs> because as it's a book that deals a lot with Umi, I think that it should be updated. Because if I talk through that, I talk about stolen bicycle that I had it after my thesis, but I don't mention his two most recent books. I mean, Kuijudi, The Land of the Rain, and Haifang Dafande, that is just out in July, I think, or June, which would be greatly relevant to the issues I'm tackling in this book. So maybe. 
But I know that there is currently a collective work being in process in English, edited by Professor Michael Berry and Sio Guifen. Yeah, you contribute to that. And I think that it will be very interesting. And I think you're taking part too, Piran and me too. As well as an article, we'll also submit a discussion between two translators with Daryl Sturk, Umi's English translator, who translated The Man with the Compound Eye, The Stone Bicycle. And the idea is to talk about our relationship with the other in his work, our feelings as translator, our experiences, our difficulties, our challenges, but also our pride <laughs> to have achieved that. So maybe it will be the next book about Wumini, which is a collective one. So you have a lot of different and brilliant scholars who are currently writing their parts about Wumini in English. And then maybe if the book is very successful or if it attracts a lot of people, I mean, curiosity about Wumini, maybe will have interest in my book. But, you know, publishers often believe in books more than others. So maybe. And I'd be delighted if someone wanted to translate and publish it. That would be great. Well, thank you, Bernard, for this wonderful interview today. Thank you very much. I'm very delighted that we get to chat about the book in our podcast series. Although we do often meet up on academic work contexts like in Taiwan literature events or conferences, but I get the feeling that we don't talk too much about your literary analysis about Wu Bingyi alone. We do hope that one day we'll be able to invite you back again to UK for physical attendance uh, to give more public talks uh, to our students and lecturers. And next time round, we'll come back definitely with you to talk about your translative work, more specifically on our Taiwan on Air podcast. Thank you. Thank you.